Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. There was a quote knocking around WhatsApp this week that goes that the business of theatre demands you have a completely fortified heart to withstand all the rejection. But the craft of theatre demands your heart be wide open so to create vulnerability and truth. And the effort of sustaining both states is a lot. With that burning away in the back of my mind, I got to sit down with writer Lisa Tierney Kyo in the final days of prep before her play, This Beautiful Village, debuts on the Abbey stage. Not known for my subtlety, I cut straight to the chase and talk truth and power, rejection and resilience, the cut and thrust of a business day making theatre in Ireland. Lisa talks about her relationship as a writer with the Abbey, then and now, being in the trenches with Wake and the Feminists and finding a vocabulary that calls out the patriarchy. We go on and talk about the humour in her work, power play dynamics, and how laughter is the best medicine when you're blowing up the cannon. Lisa talks about the sheer creative joy of being an outsider, writing home thoughts from abroad, the homesickness, the heartsickness, and the genuine sickness when the word cancer drops into your world, the impact that word has on your body, has on your mind, and finding a way to understand what just happened. As is Lisa's way, we wrap it all in laughter, talking of her father's horror of her impending career in PR, the spin and soft step of family folklore, and what good writing feels like. Enjoy this podcast. Lisa Tierney Kyo, we are a week or so away from this beautiful village previewing on the Abbey stage. This particular play on the Abbey stage now, there's no way to be nonchalant about it. This is very important to you. Yeah, it's a huge deal. I'm really excited. As the days kind of go by and I see run after run after run, I'm getting more and more psyched. I'm, you know, I'm just genuinely excited to share this with, uh, with people who come and see it. I'm excited to see what it's going to do. This is your eighth or ninth play, I, I believe. Am I right in thinking that? Around that, yeah. Um, I've heard you reference this play as a, it being the closest to your true voice. What is it that you want to say in this play and what's the truth of it? Oh, pow, what a question. What is it I want to say? I guess I've come to the point in my life where, and in my writing, where I have found my voice, and that is telling the truth, and telling the truth with a compassion. And I found myself navigating the last few years, very turbulent few years in, in my life and in the world in general. It's just been so bonkers. I found myself wanting to tell the truth about where we are exactly now. And for me, that came down to talking about what's going on with men and women and the and also about power. When I looked around the world, I seem to if you break everything down, everything kind of that's wrong or dysfunctional in the world and you break it all down, it all comes down to abuses of power. And it felt to me that the truest thing I could do was to talk about this. And also, I feel it's really important that you speak truth to power. Not that I am some sort of, you know, maverick in that way. I just feel like I have a small corner of the world and I want to do something in it. And that's what drove me to start writing about this, about power. Was there a turning point in those last few years that, that switched, that you changed gear and that you found your voice? Mm, definitely. Waking the Feminists was that moment for me. Um, I tried everything I could before Waking the Feminists. I tried just, I even thought about changing my name to a male name 
and submitting under that male pseudonym. I thought about, I actually, you know, was like, I'll just put my head down and I'll work really hard and then, you know, cream will always rise to the top, you know, blindly unaware of the statistics that were just stacked against me and stacked against other women um, playwrights. And uh, I, when Lean Bell put something up on Facebook um, and a dialogue started and I was reading it and going, yeah, that is, it was regarding the 2016 program, um, Waking the Nation, that Fake McNeil had programmed here at the Abbey. Um, I remember reading all the angry comments and thinking, yeah, I feel that. And I f I f I, it all kind of crystallized for me in that moment. And I, I chimed in and I joined in the conversation thinking that was that. And uh, Lean asked me um, in a private message, would, she, would I mind if uh, she put my messages on Twitter? And I said, yeah, sure. What are you going to do, not produce my plays? And I meant that not just for the Abbey, I meant that across the board, as in I had just reached a point where I had tried everything and obviously nothing was working. And I was starting in that moment to realize, oh, maybe it's not actually me. Maybe there is a systemic problem here. And that was the beginning of a journey. I spent a year really hard in the trenches with Waking the Feminists, and that took up a lot of energy. And in that year, I also was kind of coming to an age and I was a new mother of just kind of finding the truth of who I am and understanding more about myself and my journey. And uh, that's what brought me to a place where I, I realized the story, the kind of stories I wanted to tell. So it's made you a better writer, would you oh, think? Oh, 100 percent, 100 percent. I mean, Oh, when I started out, I was like, well, OK, what do audiences want to see? What does a producer want to read? What does a director want to read? And I, I think to a certain extent, a lot of artists make this mistake, like, what do I think will sell? And you are inundated with people telling you, you know, don't write plays with big casts or, you know, write this kind of film, you know, whatever, whatever the, it is it, that is the latest trend. You find yourself going into that and thinking, oh, if I just do this, then I'll get my work will be produced, but that's actually not the truth. And in the end, if you don't do or write or create what is true to you and true to your voice, it'll fail anyway. It'll fail either artistically or creatively or it'll fail, you know, economically. You have to be true. And if you're true and you tell this and you, you tell the truth and you you kind of stick to who you are, I mean, you can't really go wrong. I want to ask you about your relationship with the Abbey because as a writer it has been up and down and mm -hmm. on and off and you were part of that inaugural um, New Playwrights programme so you would have submitted and you would have been commissioned yeah. to write plays and then they weren't produced. So what do you make of those rejections now with the distance of those years? Yeah, um, it was actually only one, there was one commission and it was directly after the New Playwrights programme and it was a totally different process than it is now and not necessarily a good one. Um, there was one commission and I wrote the play that we talked about me writing and when it was turned down, I didn't understand. And I'd had a lot of, I mean, you know, I'm, I've been doing this for 18 or 19 years. I know what rejection is. I mean, you, you kind of learn to figure out the ones that are actually truthful or that, that you know, are genuine from the ones that are just don't make any sense. This one just didn't make any sense to me. And I was crushed by it. I was seven months pregnant and um, I remember I was walking across, uh, across town in New York because I was living there at the time 
and I checked, I just stopped and I checked my email and I saw it and I called my husband and he came and met me and I just burst into tears and I couldn't talk about why because then you're just labelled a bitter writer or worse, a bitter woman writer and you know, I just had to bear that and I went into pregnancy and then childbirth and then being a new mother carrying that massive rejection and kind of wondering like, well, what is the point in going back in there? Like I've been rejected, like I've been u unanimously rejected by my country. Um, that's what it felt like. So um, and so what actually happened is then I I turned my my when I did kind of make my way back to work after I had my daughter, I focused on television and screenwriting and kind of going on that adventure, which is another podcast for another day. That was gas crack. <laughs> With when you talk about, I mean, even the vocabulary around it, I'm, I'm kind of conscious of even that using that word rejection. But it's um, it is like a body blow to your confidence. Oh, totally. No, it is. A re rejection is the correct word for it because sometimes it's you just get turned down, but sometimes it's a rejection of you, of who you are, especially when you have been true to what it is that you committed to doing. And it's not just critical feedback because I suppose in your game. Um, these are the gatekeepers, so mm. you write this piece and then, well, what do you do when you write this piece and these gatekeepers say no? Where do you go from there? Well, I think, I think well, first of all, talking about critical feedback, if you talk to anybody who's worked with me, they'll tell you that I am in, like now, I am one of the easiest people to work with in terms of my ability to take feedback. I welcome it. In fact, I can take hardcore criticism more than most people. I've. I've, de I've developed that muscle and I understand now that f feedback, no script is ever perfect first shot and what you want is somebody, like I've been working with Louise Stevens, the dramaturg here, and she's incredible. And she, ha we have rigorously gone through my script almost line by line, consistently, consistently going back, going back, going back and you just have to keep, that kind of critical feedback is vital to making something work and you have to, that's a muscle I think all playwrights have to develop and I think a lot of playwrights and that combined with knowing where your boundaries are and making sure that no I trust myself on this you also have to it's a, it's a, it's a balance but anyway going back to your question about what you do at rejection I think some of them are harder than others that Abbey rejection was was probably the most crushing of my career and I've had loads what you do is you you take time you dust yourself off and you get back up again and I've always said that I would know when it's time to give up. I've come very close to it many times, but uh, something has made me keep going. And that's what you do. You literally just take stock and you try and figure out, is there something to be gleaned from it? Like, is, is there something I could have done better? And if there is, then you think about that. And if there isn't, and that's, this happened before Waking the Feminist, so I took it all on as there must be something wrong with me because nobody wants to do my work. And then it was only when the statistics came out and you go, holy shit, nobody wants to do any work by women. Like, it's not just me. It's across the board. In, in theatres, in, in theatre sector, in, in tech, in other arts, like in everywhere. I was just looking the other day at the amount of women that have been elected in Ireland, which is just shocking since the foundation of the state. Like, the representation of women in across the board in society is pretty poor. Yeah, it's across all society, and I think we're having those conversations now. We also have language around it. We didn't have language about this. We didn't have language prior to 2017 when the allegations against Harvey Weinstein and then Me Too exploded. We did not have language. It was just kind of whispers and hushes amongst women or amongst um, 
victims of sexual violence and harassment. But we didn't have a language for it. Now we actually have a language. We didn't have a language around equality in this country. It was just like you just got on with it because we were so busy dealing with post-colonial oppression. You know, we, were, we, we weren't looking at all the absolute evils and travesties that were being committed against women in this country. Yeah, it was this line of acceptability that mm -hmm. we were just willing to keep kind of raising and raising, you know, and yeah. just think, oh, we'll put up with it, we'll put yeah. up with it. Irish women have put up with so much, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically in the context, I'm not about to, I'm not interested in conversations anymore where like, oh, well, women in Saudi Arabia have it worse. Well, of course we know that. That doesn't make it any better or good that it's bad in Ireland. It's bad everywhere. It's been bad forever. Read history books, watch documentaries. You can see that women have consistently been second-class citizens since the dawning of civilization. And <laughs> one of the things that I thought I could do with this play when I started out, I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to break the patriarchy. And one of the hardest moments that I kept coming back to in the play was, oh, I can't do this myself. I am one small cog in a wheel of history where I'm trying to do my small part in my corner of the world at my time in history. And uh, accepting that, you know, I sometimes feel a great pressure to like, to make all the women, because I, I want to help all women, I want to help all like underrepresented voices, you know, all minority voices. I really, really want to give airtime and space to them. And when you, f when you suddenly realize that you can't do it, it's really hard. But it's a start. It's a start, it's and something. it's a start yeah. of those stories. Yeah playing out on our stages and those stories that you tell your kids and yeah. you know and you're nourishing these little kids about you know th that anything is possible mm -hmm. you know and you're giving them a vocabulary mm -hmm. that we didn't have yeah exactly um one of the things that was really important to me is i wanted to um have a black irish voice on stage i wanted a black irish character and you know there are not that many in the history of irish theater there really isn't. I mean, I can't think of many examples. I asked in the rehearsal room the other day, they gave me two, but one of them was written as a white character, but it was cast as a, as a with a black actress. So one of the things I wanted to do with this play was to write something where it gave at least some voice to a black Irish voice, because this country has changed demographics. It has changed, and we need to be telling stories about everyone, not just, you know, white Irish people. And to reflect that onto... And to reflect that on the stage and to put stories in front of people where they can go, huh, yeah, that is, okay, yeah, that is what my street looks like. That is what the world is like now. And not just a bunch of white people on stage, middle-class white people on stage talking about, you know, whatever they're talking about. Yeah, what is it? You, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah, exactly. And, th and that's a huge, a huge component for me that drove me in Waking the Feminists was I had, I basically had given up hope of having my work put on again and what drove me all the way through Waking the Feminists was hearing stories or having messages from young women who were saying if these are the statistics why will I even bother I could I was messaging with people who weren't going to who were on the verge of giving up and that for me made me so angry that the injustice of that is what drove me to keep fighting you're one of the um, associate playwrights here at the Abbey now, and you so you represent the interests of playwrights whilst working on mm. new plays. Do you feel that responsibility in that role, having been on the other side of it? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I feel I, I feel a responsibility, particularly to support you know new and upcoming writers, and particularly women or writers um, who are black or who are brown. Um, I feel it's important to represent voices that are not 
or to like to, to basically use my platform or use my access to, you know, the new work department to be like, you should check this writer out or, you know, this opportunity might be coming up. Can you do something about this? Because for so long, our national theatre has felt like a closed shop and it doesn't feel like that anymore. Do you feel vindicated? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, you know, it's funny because like I, this is, you know, I was in Waking the Feminist, I was, you know, a core member and, you know, now I'm getting my play put on the Abbey and it's that, vindication is probably the wrong word for that, but I feel vindicated in that you can put stories on the stage that are not the same old, same old and people will still be interested. Like people are really interested in this play um, and it's going to be, it's going to be a funny, exciting play for people to come and see. Like it's razor sharp, it's also short, which is always, always a plus. And I think people are going to really enjoy it. And that that is really where the vindication will be for me. Will you tell me how it came about to be commissioned? Um, Graham and uh, Graham McLaren and, and Neil Murray got in touch with me and about um, writing something. And I kind of put it down to, oh, yeah, sure. Like, you know, you get loads of meetings of like, we'd love to work with you. And then nothing ever comes of it. But it's different with. Neil and with Graham they mean it and um, so it started out with one thing and I I have to say like I dragged my feet because I was in the middle of this really kind of it was in 2017 where we first kind of had a conversation about it and then I kind of things were changing so fast that like the thing that you would think you would write about would like it was, that was just when Me Too was exploding and everything was just going bonkers and you just couldn't keep up um, and so then we kept talking and, and, and then I actually went down a crazy road and I pitched Graham this mad idea where I was going to shoot a woman out of a cannon on the Abbey stage. <laughs> and it was bonkers. I got so angry at like the cannon and I got so angry at Greek tragedies and how they're all about men and the only women in it who get power then inflict destruction and violence, which sends this message that women are untrustworthy and uh, and uh, and not to be tr like they're not to be trusted. And and, and I, I got this bee in my bonnet. And then of course, I like gave that to Graham and he said, well, this yeah, this isn't it's not exactly what we talked about. <laughs> and he was so patient with me. And I, I guess I needed to. I was just trying to find my way into how I was going to talk about power. I needed to I needed to navigate. Sometimes you need to navigate some pretty crazy waves. And I'll be honest with you, I did it because I felt safe and I did it because I was like, well, if they kick me, if they don't commission me, well, then all right, well, so be it. Like, you know, I have to do what I'm going to do. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not doing this for the money. And, you know, the way things have gone, I'm not expecting that anything to come of this. So I might as well do what I want to do. Um, and then Graham gave me some really good notes and I went away and I just kind of like reformed and he was like, yeah, let's do this. So there were elements of that cannon firing play in Beautiful Village. <laughs> I they mean, no, like if you and go anyway. and uh, no, that was like that was just that was my journey. That was part of my journey. That was as far as you could go. That was yeah. a, that was part of my journey to get to the place where like trying to figure out like how angry I was at how the kind of plays and the kind of stories we've been telling. And how I wanted, I so wanted to break that in two. I wanted to snap it and break it apart. And this was my my kind of like, sometimes you just got to go down a road. Um, but then when I figured out, it's funny because this is the first time I've ever written a play where, so I have this um, gold notebook and you can actually track 
my thought, my handwriting is legible enough and my thought pattern is, is, is understandable, you, I can track how it is I got to six people in a room. They can't know, they can't be related to each other. What would work in this situation? How do I, how do I get power dynamics into a room? And then it hit me, I was like, it's a residence association. I need, and it, it, it kind of came into this feeling of, I want people who represent everything in a room and you can't do that with a family. If you're a family, then there's a whole different dynamics. I needed people who were not related to each other so that I could explode all the things that I wanted to talk about. And that's, that's how I found my way in. And the idea that y you knew you'd be writing for the Abbey Theatre, mm. did that hinder you in any way, knowing, or did you write with an audience in mind? No, no, I absolutely 100% just wrote what I had to write. And that was incredibly liberating. I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it the way I want. I didn't think about characters. I didn't think about the fact that, like, you know, there's certain there's certain action points in the play that have actually turned out to be quite tricky, um, especially for the stage management. I didn't think about any of that. I didn't think about, you know, six characters. Didn't think about what the set would be like or anything like that. I was like, I'm just going to write this and I'm going to tell my story. It, it, um, it feels like there are six characters in search of a moral compass, or at least yeah. um, a culprit. Yeah. Uh, it's a very funny play, Lisa. Thank it's, you. it's a verbally very playful, and it's so, so sharp. Um, I'm really excited about seeing it in front of an audience yeah. and seeing where they're going to laugh. Uh, yeah, me too. And, uh, me where too. they shouldn't laugh, or yeah. where they identify. It's funny, because there's a joke in it that I have loved since the get-go, and I'm fully expecting people to not laugh at it even though it's my favorite joke and that's the thing about audiences they will never they will never laugh where you want them to and they will always surprise you and um thank you for saying it's funny um, i knew from the get-go if i was going to write about anything to do with gender it had to be funny will you talk about humor in your work you're using humor to get a message across you're being funny about it that's the only way to tell anything. The only way to the dark is through the humour. I have learned this lesson over and over again. If you set out to write, okay, I'm going to write a comedy, you're doomed. And it's also down to personal taste, like the kind of stuff I like. I find I get the most kind of like gratification and juice out of seeing something that's so dark and there being something funny in it. Like that's my sense of humour. And I also think that it's the most rich territory to mine so that like because and I think particularly as Irish people we're really really good at finding something funny in darkness it's kind of like our national forte we're really good at it and you know you laugh through the pain you know like there's an Irish joke like you can't be a good funeral like I mean this is this is what this is where we are and so and I just feel like particularly and I've had so many lengthy, difficult, challenging, somewhat boring conversations about gender equality and a lot of confrontational ones as well where like a lot of very defensive people are. And one of the things I realized in all of these conversations is that you can do, you can approach all of this with compassion and you have to keep a sense of humor. And I think that's true in life anyway. Like you just, if you can't laugh at it, you're screwed. You have to be able to laugh at things. Otherwise, you just, what, what, what are we doing here? It does seem in that room, in that residence association, things are, I mean, some of the things that are said are absolutely vile. And, yeah. and you're preempting, I suppose, what an audience member might be thinking, I yeah. think, and, but you'd never say it, yeah. do you know? Yeah, it's, it's funny. We were just talking about this yesterday. Um, I was saying how, like, people are going to 
people who know me might sit in the audience and think, I didn't think Lisa was like this, or I didn't think she'd say things like this, but it's all intentional. And I'm just like dropping crumbs and bringing, I'm intentionally bringing you in, intentionally bringing you in. That's one of the things I've learned from watching theatre and living in New York and going to so much theatre is that if you can make an audience laugh in the first 10 or 20 minutes and make them feel safe, they'll pretty much go with you anywhere. And it's a more enjoyable, ex I myself as an audience member, I want to laugh. I want to have the crack. I don't want to get hammered over the head with something from the get go. I, like, I want to feel something because I was made to feel it, not because you told me to feel it. You lived and worked in New York City for 10 years. How did that inform your work? And do you become more Irish as a writer over there? I'm, I'm not even thinking an Irish writer, but you know the way? Oh, it's you, a, you basically just go into this like confused land as far as I'm concerned. I did not. I did not kind of hang around in Irish theatre circles. Obviously, it's a very small community and everybody knows each other. I did not start writing, you know, Irish plays. Um, in fact, when I went over there first, you know, a pretty big off-Broadway theatre literary manager told me, come back to me when you're more American, when, you're, when your work is more American, which is just so ridiculous. Um, uh, it, it didn't make me more Irish. It made me... Over time, I'd say, on reflection, looking at the whole thing, I'd say what it's done is it's helped me have an outsider's view of my own country and an outsider's view of America, which gives you a good way of being detached in a place and kind of being able to sit back and look at things for the way they are. And that's a gift. It's, and also, like, I mean, it was very difficult. I was very homesick. However, it also was a gift and being exposed to things that I would never have been exposed to here and good and bad. It's funny that you said that I use that very word. I was thinking about when you write from a distance and, and what, well, when you write from a distance, what happens to those expectations when you have an expectation of leaving Ireland, going to America, and then there's a reality and then you have the expectation of coming home. So you, for these last, over a decade, you've been just living between these two worlds. But mm. I wondered, uh, you're, you contribute to the Irish Times as a columnist as well. Um, and I wondered, was there a homesickness underneath all of that? Uh, yeah, there was. Um, I also enjoy writing those pieces, um, you know, and they have, were, have been kind enough to take most of the pieces I've ever sent them. I think they've only ever turned me down twice. Um, that's more. That's the pieces I write, kind of journalist pieces, are journalism pieces. They're more because I enjoy that medium. I enjoy stretching that muscle. I really, really enjoy having something to say, finding a way to say it and putting it across and it going out into the world and that's it. And I think as a playwright, you need something like that because plays, I mean, you might not get a play put on for five or six years, you know? Like how you have to creatively sustain yourself somehow. And sharing that um, public opinion, I, I, even doing these talks, I'm very aware that I haven't, you know, I have to catch up to speed with what I'm willing to say on record. Mm. Um, do you find that when, you, when you're revealing aspects of your personal life or things that have happened to you in these columns, because they are um, they're personal snapshots mm. of your life in America and yeah. also now coming home, uh, do you get a, a bit of kickback? Oh yeah, I mean, anytime I've written about gender, there's always like people, men who have a lot of comments to say about it on the comment section. But like, I mean, 
I honestly, can I curse here? Yeah, don't, don't look below the comment line, right? I mean, <laughs> I don't give a fuck. I just don't. It's just like your opinion, man, and it's not true. I've also had a lot of people tell me that they really responded to what I've written. And, you know, if you put yourself out there, people are going to try and tear you down. That's a fact. If you put your art out there, people are going to try, try and tear you down, you know, like critics or whatever, you know. There's nothing you can do about it, but you, you certainly am. I'm certainly not about to let it stop me. Um, I mean, I think when I talk about certain things, particularly to do with my family, I'm very careful about that, about my, my, my daughter. And there are certain aspects of what's happened in my life that I am not yet fully talking about, but that I am on the way to talking about. Um, but I don't, I don't regret anything I say, like anything I, I've written, I stand by. Like I wrote a lot of pieces about gun violence in America and I stand by that. And I've had, I've, I've stood in my apartment in New York and gotten a letter home from the school saying my daughter did an active shooter drill. I'm like, that's, that's not okay. When I, and going over there, I was over there in August and like the week I was there, there was two mass shootings. It's, it's banana pants. And you know, again, I, it comes down to like, I have, an ability and an interest in writing about things and I have a small platform and I'd like to say things and you know if you want to read it great and if you don't then don't you know it's that simple for me. You've spoken about being diagnosed and treated for cancer while in America can I ask you how you're doing now but also about the emotional impact of that and how long it takes your mind to catch up with what has happened to you? Yeah first of all from the outset, I had a super treatable, non-life-threatening cancer. And it's funny because I know people who've had, quote unquote, serious cancer that could kill you. Um, and then you're suddenly into like comparative cancer. So I don't engage in that. But that said, um, I can recognize that I have been incredibly fortunate in, in like on the cancer spectrum, I've been about as lucky as you can get. And it's still been really hard. Um, and I. It's funny, my best friend said something to me in the last year. She was like, you're, you're very stoic about all that. And in my head, I'm not, because I'm just dealing with it every day. Like, I still have, I still have breathing problems at nighttime um, because I had a lot of reconstructions on my nose because a piece of cancer was taken out of my nose and the inside of my nose had to be reconstructed. And that, like, there are, there are knock-on effects that, have, that are not, they're, they're related to the fact that I had cancer, but they're nothing, they're not cancer. Do you know what I mean? That you're, you're just supposed to, that people forget about um, and that your family and your friends forget about that you have to deal with every day. Like, you know, for me, it's a huge one is on my nose is that like, I can't breathe properly. I have nerve damage. Sometimes there's pain and it's, you know, and then of course, like I said, skin cancer, I can't be in the sun, which is not the worst, but like, it's also, it's a factor. Like, you know, Jesus Christ, like, I should wish I'd invested in sunscreen, you know, <laughs> just like, I mean, there's small things, you know, but it, I don't think I have, once you hear the word cancer, you just, your life just gets turned upside down, regardless of whether it's pre-cancer or this cancer or whatever cancer, once you hear that word, something happens inside you that can't be undone. And then, you know, this all happened to me in New York. I was in cancer hospitals in New York getting, you know, checked and people were missing, pe people missed something growing on my nose. And even though I was being monitored and it just grew bigger and then I had, to, as a result of that, I then had to have m probably more surgeries than I would have needed. And then you're in New York where nobody gives a shit if you're sick, nobody cares what's going on with your day. And then, 
you have to recover there. And you know, it was it was a, it was a tough time. You know, it was a, it was a really tough time. Um, and I I don't think I've fully kind of let that settle in my body yet. Probably because I'm too overwhelmed by it. It's um, I've noticed I was talking to a colleague here, and and he had been talking to me about recovering from an illness as well. And people were constantly asking him, like. I suppose about the yeah the physical ailment you know how far he'd come from that, but he was still grappling, um, and he was curious as to why people weren't asking him like where his head was at. Oh after no, it. people all they care um, and like and to a certain extent and that's because this is what doctors do. If you're physically okay and you physically don't have cancer, then you're fine. That's that's the beginning, middle, and end of it. And to a to a certain extent, that is true. Uh, but the scars, be they physical or emotional or whatever still are there and you still have to cope with stuff and it still affects your marriage. I think I read a statistic once that 50% of marriages where a woman has breast cancer end in divorce in America. I don't know if that's true, but I can totally see how the pressure of cancer and or a serious illness in a family would upend it. And I know it upended my family and it was incredibly difficult. And I had, like I said, I had the easy end of things. And is there any path that they tell you that you should navigate in order to um, tackle uh, your mental health in regards to, you know, you're cancer free? But no, they like, I mean, it's funny because I was one of the place, the first place from the first cancer I had, which was between my nose and my lip. And uh, I was going for like kind of post treatment. They were giving me these injections and uh, I would go to the hospital and there was peace lilies. I remember this. There was like reflection rooms and peace lilies everywhere. And there was leaflets for, you know, coping with. But it was all for people who had had this quote unquote serious cancers like ovarian cancer and breast cancer. And they should have those supports. Someone like me, there's you just you, you just you don't have it. You don't have a cancer that could kill you. So you're, you're grand. Yeah. I hear what you're saying, and, I, and I, but I also hear that you're downplaying it as well. I have to because the so society downplays it. Yeah, but reading your, reading the material that you've written about it, it sounded so traumatic. Like for yeah. hours and hours, you were bleeding. Yeah, you know, that was that was rough. That was real rough. That was like, yeah, my seven hundred dollar nosebleed, where I, yeah, I, I, I stayed home bleeding out of my nose and um, trying to stop trying to stop a hemorrhage in your own head is pretty scary. <laughs> and people make this face, like the face you're making right now. But like, to be honest with you, I just have to kind of downplay it or else I just like get overwhelmed by it. And I don't have the space to get overwhelmed. Maybe, you know, I've been going nonstop for a few years and maybe I need to take a couple of months and just kind of like sit in a room and say um and stare at the wall and kind of think about these things. I don't know. I, I, maybe I, I know I've heard about this room that people are meant to sit in and just yeah. stare into the blank, but I'd be very worried about whether you ever get, get out of that room yeah. from staring. I know. You know, that's why you yeah. don't go into that room. Yeah. You keep charging on. You just keep charging on. And that's, you, that, that is something that happens, I think, particularly as a woman, as a mother, as a playwright for me, as with the kind of the chronic health issues that I have. Um, you just tend to just keep charging the battery overnight and keep going, but slowly over time, the, like the main, the main frame is kind of diminishing, you know? And it, this is like, I haven't even gotten into talking to you about um, a massive trauma that happened to me in my early 20s that's, you know, led to depression and anxiety and PTSD that I have to deal with as well. And that's, that's a whole separate thing, but they all, they all get smushed together and you just, every day you're just kind of, okay, 
how am I going to get through today? Well, they all accumulate. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is it, do you address it, or do you as you do you carry it? You know, is that what you do with those <sighs> kind of traumas? Yeah, I mean, it's in it's it's in every part of your body. Like body bodies, um, bodies keep trauma. They store trauma. There's a great book um, called "The Body Keeps the Score" by Bessel van der Kolk. He's a Dutch doctor practicing out of um, Boston, and he talks a lot about trauma in the body. And uh, so when, we're, when we have a massive trauma, we store it in the body. And we have to work very, you have to work very, very hard to kind of expunge it or manage it. That's one of the things that I have learned in years of therapy and kind of working on a, on a healing journey is that you have to learn to manage things. You can't, there's no end point where something like, oh, I'm grand now. And I've seen this in other survivors, like that you just kind of reach a point where, where there's no like, oh, to, that's it now, park that. It changes over time, yeah, but and every, every single person's journey is different. Um, but you learn to manage it with the right support. Yeah, there's, there's no finish line, there's no end line. No. And I think it is, And I, you use the word coping, but I, I think it is about coping and carrying and coexisting. Yeah. Somehow managing to coexist. And a huge part of it is staying in the moment and not like when things get crazy, like even on the bus on the way in here, I have cam.com on my, or I have a cam app on my phone and I, had to, I was having a, a surge of anxiety and I just stuck that on and I just sat in the bus for half an hour and just like breathed. I was like, okay, I'm just on the bus with my hands on my legs. Like sometimes you just have to do that. You just have to put your hand on the table and be like, I'm here. It's all cool. We're grand. I only looked into the CAM app yesterday. That's brilliant. Except it was kind of it was kind of saying it was going to cost me a certain amount of money for the year, and I was like, so I went back to Headspace, I think. But, and I was only thinking about those three to five minutes that you can give just to yeah. uh, anchor yourself to that breathing, you yeah. know, and be in that moment. And every day is a battle. Like some days you're some days you're winning. Like this morning, I had breakfast, and then I had a baraka, and I had vitamins, and I thought that that was a triumph because in the last few days. I've stopped, I was telling the cast upstairs, like, I seem to have stopped eating meals. Like what, I'm just like perpetually snacking rather than eating meals. But I know that that's just kind of busyness and kind of, you know, nerves, excited giddiness. But um, this morning I was like, all right, look at me. Yeah. Breakfast, get my hair did, get my nails did, you know, grown, grown human woman doing her thing. You're starting out right. Yeah. Can I ask you about um, how parenthood, uh, how it's changed you as a writer? Um, well, first of all, there's the time and space. You you have this, you develop this incredibly different relationship to space and time where you go, oh my God, what the fuck did I do with my life before I had a child? In that first year after I had a kid, I worked harder than I think I've ever worked. And you become keenly aware of how much work you have to get done in, 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 an infinite, in, in a finite amount of time. Another thing that's happened is I am no longer able to work 16 hours. Like I have learned to recognize that come four o'clock in the afternoon, my brain is shut down and I need to stop and then I need to restart like that. that, that and that, that's a cumulative thing of age, trauma and like, you know, just all the stuff that's happened in my life in the past few years. But that, you know, spending time with my daughter, I'm I have to be present with her. And that's actually really good because I it means like at this this past weekend, I had speeches to rewrite and my husband recognized it and he was like, just go to your office. I'll take her for the weekend. Just go get it done. And I've explained it to him like this will be a crazy time, but then I'll be back and you'll have me all the time. But I try to be with her when I'm with her and when I'm not with her, then you know, I'm working. Um, it kind of it does in a way help you kind of separate 
work, work and family time. I think that's really important. Can I ask you about your own upbringing? Your father is actor, writer, director, Gar Kyo, and your mother is film and theatre designer, Marie Tierney. You know all this. Yeah. But um, not knowing any other way and perhaps being too young to be cognizant of that, do you remember your first encounter with theatre? Yeah, lots of it was in the project. And lots of it was here in the Abbey, upstairs in the rehearsal room. Yeah, like, and, and probably being babysat and being told to sit there, be quiet. Like, I mean, I just grew up in production offices and theatres and being told to be quiet. Like, I knew from a very young age how you, I could literally stand stealth in the wings of a theatre and you wouldn't even know I'm there. So, like, I just don't know. I didn't know any other world. And then deciding to kind of pursue it, were you deterred or encouraged by your parents? I mean, who knows their art from their elbow when they're like 18, 19, 20? Nobody. Um, I did terrible when I leaving cert, like terrible. And so I went and I studied marketing and then PR and politics, like one year courses, didn't know what I was doing. And then I was like, all right, I'll go and be an actress. And I was like, oh, God, I'll do that. That lasted less than a year. And I wrote my first play. And then I was like, OK, I want to write plays. What was um, it about acting that didn't appeal to you and, and that writing did? Um, well, first of all, auditioning is gross and horrible and hellacious. Um, and two, I don't think I was very good. Um, and. I felt like I had so much more, I had a sense, even though I didn't know what kind of a writer I was at that point, I didn't know what my voice was, I didn't even know what a voice was, that it was a thing. Um, I definitely felt like, hmm, I'd much rather be the person that's making the words that people say than be the person that says the words. That, that feels much better for me. It suits me better. And were you always writing? Oh yeah. And do you remember what you first wrote that you said, oh, I've written something here, I'm going to show it to someone. Did you test it out on someone? I, um, well, no, I had, my, I had a really good English teacher um, in, in secondary school and I was always writing um, and I enjoyed it. Um, and I was always writing like, you know, teenage angsty shite. Um, and, but when I wrote my first play, I was quite young. I think I was 22 and I wrote, 22, 23 and I wrote my first play. And I gave it to my dad to read and I was terrified, like terrified. And that play went on, uh, it did really well. It was nominated for the Stuart Parker. You know, we made money on it. I mean, made money by like 50 quid or whatever. But um, it did really well. And that kind of, that was a moment for me. I was like, oh, okay, maybe I can, this feels, you're, I was just operating off my gut. But remember, everybody I knew was in college. They were going down the, the path that you're supposed to go down. I use that in inverted commas. Like everybody was doing the path you're supposed to do. And I was over here doing mad stuff, like working three jobs writing plays and I'm sure everybody thought I was bonkers. But if you're coming from that kind of background like and I'm sure that the mystery and you know when you look behind the curtain I suppose you know what you're getting into but mm. because your your parents were creatives um, it probably wasn't such a hard sell you know, or to sell that idea to them that this is what you were going to do. Well actually I, when I told my father that I was going to go and study marketing he said to me what are you going to do what are you doing with your life? Wow. You know like when I, I, I was nervous about telling him I wanted to go and study acting and I actually, I'm really glad as horrendous as an experience as it was for me, just excruciating and personally, because I'm not an actress. And if you're not an actress, then performing is your worst nightmare. Um, I still think to this day, it stood to me in terms of having compassion and understanding for how actors work on stage. You know, I mean, I have a natural, I, I have a natural ear for dialogue. And I have, because of my time, you know, being in, in actors' studios, um, that uh, 
of understanding how actors work a little bit. And I think that helps. Also, my dad's an actor and you grow up as an actor and you kind of, you just can't help but absorb. So if, you, if you're a little bit shy about telling your dad that you're thinking about doing the acting, how does it work when you have writers in the family um, and that you're being a writer? Because sometimes that can be a hindrance, mm. you know, that you're following in footsteps or you're constantly going to be compared. Yes. So my cousin is Connor McPherson, who is wildly successful and was wildly successful from age 26. And that was definitely difficult for me to kind of first of all say that I want to do this. And it, it had nothing to do with him. I was doing it because I wanted to. But when you have somebody who is as wildly talented and brilliant and, and fantastic as Connor, you know, to have that in your family, I mean, that's a bit of pressure. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You're like, and is that something that you kind of, you stay back and you do your own thing and you, and you kind of, you know, you, you go down your own path or is that something you, you confer with or, you know, because I, I would imagine sometimes there can be a little bit of a dynas about. Mm, definitely. I think in the early years, I was definitely very shy about it. I'm not, not so much anymore. Like, I mean, now it's like I'm doing my thing. He's on Broadway. <laughs> he's, doing ama he's doing amazing, which he should because he's brilliant. Um, you know, you just kind of do your own thing. Like, I mean, you can't, mm -hmm. as my grandmother used to say, you can't please all the people all the time. You can only please some of the people some of the time. It's true. I live by that. <laughs> it's is so this, true. Is this the granny that danced for Hitler? This is the granny that stands for Hitler. Oh my God, that story. It has neither been confirmed nor de denied. But yeah, um, I think that she, she didn't personally dance for Hitler. She was in a dance group in a, uh, probably in front of like, oh Jesus Christ, this is gas. Um, yeah, she was amazing. She had a shop down on Parnell Street and uh, she sold shoes. And that's a whole factor of my life that I haven't even explored creatively of like all these women that like I was around from a very young age who were like a village of women who just kind of minded me and showed me how to be in the world, like taught me how to negotiate, taught me how to sell, taught me how to like comport myself, like all, all these things. Um, but yeah, she was apparently when she was young, she was a great Irish dancer. And there's a she did. She said something like she probably said, oh, I was in Germany once and dance and that somehow in the, in the family lore has come into my granny dance for Hitler. It's it's it certainly gets your attention. There's my next show, Lisa. <laughs> my granny danced for Hitler. When you talk about the women, I suppose the village of women that reared you, uh, who's been the most influential person on you as a writer? That's hard to say. I, well, I'll tell you this straight. I don't have a playwright who is a woman who was influential on me because I didn't get to see them. The playwright that was most influential on me was Tom Murphy, who is a man and no longer with us. There are women who's, who now I, and in the past kind of 10 years of my life, that I have definitely been influenced by in terms of what they're doing with their lives and what they're trying to say. People like Tina Fey or Sharon Horgan or, you know, people in Ireland, I'm trying to think, like, Sinead Gleeson, who wrote that book, Constellation, she's written loads of stuff, she's amazing. Um, Marion Keyes, like people who are out there telling the truth. Like there's a lot of great writers. A lot of the, a lot of the writers I admire are not necessarily in theatre. Um, and it's usually women who are telling the truth and telling it like it is and who are calling it out, who are just getting to the heart of things and not kind of messing around. And also you can do that with beauty and, and with kindness. 
there was not enough representation when I was growing up for me to turn around to you and say, yes, this was this was the person. The, the playwright that I saw mostly done on stage was Marina Carr. And as far as academic universities and drama departments are concerned, she's the only ever woman from Ireland who ever wrote a play, because that's the only play you'll find in a drama department. Probably different now, but like up until a couple of years ago, it would have been just Marina. What does good writing feel like to you? Ooh. For me, writing it or me seeing it? Answer both of those, maybe, okay. if you can. You know it in your bones when you're writing it. That's the best way I can put it. You just know it in your bones. You can feel, you're like, yeah, that's right. You can feel like a kind of, your, or your stomach clenches when, when you write something that you know is just going to be, oh, that's going to that's gonna hurt or that's going to smart. Um, and when I see it, it's when I am completely and entirely enveloped in the world that I'm looking at. And when the words that I'm hearing are just so beautifully crafted and put together. Can I ask you, as a wrap up, a couple of questions. What, was there a piece of theatre that had a definitive impact on you? Yeah, I saw something a couple of years ago. I saw An Octoroon by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins um, in New York and it blew my mind. I saw it twice. It was phenomenal. And it was, it was something that made me think, holy shit, you can do that. Oh my God, that's amazing. Like, and when I, it, was, it was at a level that I had never seen before. I had never seen performance and writing and thought and concept and theme put together so powerfully in my life. I urge everybody to read it, but like really honestly seeing it was just such an incredible experience for me. What's it about? Um, it's about a writer who, it's, it's, he, he, what he does is he, he takes a Dion Busico play and he turns it into a, a kind of a comment on the black experience in America. It's just, it's hard to describe, it's just phenomenal. But there's some theatrical staging in it that is just, would just blow your mind. Like just, it's it's extraordinary piece of writing. Um, that's, that's the one that comes to mind at the moment. It's refreshing to hear a recent play, because when I usually ask that question, it's usually something that was well back in the day. I didn't mm. know theatre could be like that. Oh, it can be, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it was. Um, yeah, no, that was, that was, that was the one that like, uh, that was the one that really hit me hard like and that was the one I was really grateful to be in New York and to understand to have spent time in America and to to have read and tried to learn as much about um, black history and the black experience in America and then to see that play was extraordinary for me. I'm going to wrap up as I say with two okay. and I'm, I'm, I have another question that occurred to no. me. Um, what do you want people leaving your play to leave with? I want to. I want them to feel seen. I want um, people who feel lost um, in this moment that we are in, that is so turbulent and kind of crazy. Um, I want them to feel like they've been seen a bit, and I want women or men who who are hurting at the moment to feel seen. And I also want them to laugh, to have had an entertaining, fun night out that will make them think. Final question, Lisa Tierney-Kyo, why do you write? 
oh Jesus, because if I don't, I'll go mad and I'm not qualified to do anything else and I can't waitress anymore. Mr. <laughs> <laughs> Nikio, thank you. Thank for you. With me. Thank you Thanks so much, Lisa. You better get up to that rehearsal room. Better get up.